live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon. And this is Jay Bozovich, and welcome to the Bose Nose Show, coming to you here live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And uh, it's a pretty uh, changeable day. It was just beautiful sunshine about 15 minutes ago here, and now it looks like all hell's about to break loose, um, dark and stormy. Uh, had a little hail a little while ago, and uh, who knows, they're calling for a chance of snow maybe even this evening. So here we are on the Bose Nose Show once again, and it is a free-for-all day again. I do not have a guest today, which means you get to control the conversation of the Bose Nose Show, and I welcome your calls at 646-721-9887. Again, that's 646-721-9887. And just press 1, and that lets Robin, my uh, producer, Slash call screener extraordinaire and sidekick. Uh, know that you want to get in on the conversation, and she'll put you in the queue, and we'll get you on the show, and you can control the conversation. So uh, there's a lot in the news today. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of last week talking about the state of Oregon because I'd spent a lot of time up there lobbying and dealing with state issues. But you know, I. After the show, uh, I attended the Justice um, Reinvestment Summit up in, in Salem also and did and continued to do some lobbying up there. And um, that was a pretty interesting summit because it was talking about all the various programs that um, different counties and jurisdictions are trying to put in place to basically keep people from the state prison system so we don't have to build another prison at about $140 million cost and about $53 million in operating cost um, that's continuous uh, in Oregon. So it's kind of an important issue keeping people out of prison, but in some ways it's also really important to the people and their families if we can you know, get folks that are running afoul of the law, particularly if they just have um, some kind of uh, the some kind of mental health issue that that got them in contact with the law, or they have an addiction issue that's really driving their contact with the law. We can deal with that. Um, it, it really would help, um, you know, them as people, plus you know, their families and other people around them, because quite often, you know, these folks have dependents or have spouses that are hoping to get maybe uh, child support, ex-spouses even, hoping to get child support from them. And as long as they're still addicted or they're in the state prison system, neither of those things are going to really happen. Um, And, you know, just getting them back into living a productive life is good for society in general. And there are lots of great programs that, that, you know, you may have heard of things called veterans courts um, where they um, have a specialty court set up for veterans that get uh, in trouble with the law and trying to, to get them some of the specialized um, services that, that folks suffering from PTSD and other um, disorders from their service 
kind of need to deal with living back in society and reintegrating better. Uh, and that's quite often how these vets end up in contact with the law. And that's kind of what Veterans Court does um, and gets some of these folks, you know, particularly, you know, as we see a lot of Vietnam era vets still in contact with law enforcement from drug addictions they picked up uh, in country. You know, it's, uh, it's really, um, they're important little programs that, that, you know, are throughout the state and they're funded from um, a fund that initially got set up under Governor Kitzhopper in his budget where they took the deferred cost of having to build and operate these prisons and said, you know what, we're going to reinvest this money in programs that are meant to help prisoners reintegrate so they don't reoffend and end up back in prison and also programs that try and keep people out of prison in the first place. And they've been really effective um, monies for Lane County because they're pretty flexible and we've been able to use them to cobble together a bunch of different positions um, in our uh, district attorney staff, in our um, parole probation staff. Um, we've been able to use it to pay for some additional jail beds in the jail. And it's really, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a good, a good, um, a good flexible funding source combined with Community Corrections Act funding and some specialty court funding and some other sources of funds. Um, it's done a lot of good in Lane County. In fact, we've had a real improvement in our our recidivism rate, which is the, um, you know, folks that have either been uh, put on uh, parole as they come out of prison or folks that are on probation instead of going to prison, um, how many of those people end up violating the conditions of their parole probation and get um, ended up incarcerated within three years of them uh, being put on those conditions. Um, they track that and we've actually had improvement in our recidivism rate in Lane County. Um, at the same time, the state's uh, rate has actually been sliding upward. So they've been pretty effective programs. But that was kind of an interesting summit and I got a chance to do exactly what the term lobbyist was coined for in that um, there's the ability when uh, legislators are actually meeting on the floor of the of the the house here in Oregon and it, it can, you used to be able to do it in most state houses to have a page bring a note into um, your particular representative or a representative you want to talk to and they can choose to kind of step away from the floor while somebody's giving the you know the typical speech or they're reading a bill into the record or whatever else and come out to the lobby outside of the, um, you know, outside of the uh, uh, legislature, just, you know, and in the Salem Capitol, there's a lobby on the same floor as the legislature just outside, and then talk to your legislature for a few minutes until they get called back in for a vote or something like that. And that's how the term lobbyist actually got creative was from these, you know, these special interest people that kind of made a profession out of standing in the lobby outside the legislators and passing notes in and, and trying to influence legislators by bringing them out into the lobby outside the um, legislative halls and, can, and 
talking to him one on one. And I actually um, got to do that on Thursday up there at state capitol and pull a couple of legislators out and talk to him about um, how this Justice Reinvestment Act and other public safety uh, funding streams are being utilized at the county level to do some pretty creative work to actually save the state money. And um, it was it was kind of fun. I actually got a picture of myself and the uh, Representative Nancy Nathanson, who's the co-chair of the Joint Ways and Means Committee, um, which is a pretty powerful committee out there in the lobby. And it's kind of kind of funny to actually be doing exactly what the term lobbyist was invented for. You know, most people think of lobbyists, they think of, you know, K Street and, and Washington, D.C. and these big firms and all that stuff and taking people out to dinner and whatever else, uh, uh, you know, sending them on vacations or, or, you know, that they have trouble doing now with the tighter ethics laws. But um, the original term lobbyist was just from people that kind of um, were did that so habitually that that's the, the name they received, um, you know, from the, from the public was that they were lobbyists that, that you know, kind of made a profession of standing outside legislative halls and uh, trying to talk to legislators and convince them uh, to vote one way or another on a certain subject. So, you know, one of the things that did come up in the uh, JRI summit, one of the last sessions I attended was a session on human trafficking. And, you know, I'd been pretty upbeat about things we were doing until I got into that session. And it was, um, a talk given by somebody that's been involved in um, counseling uh, women in, in particular, but any uh, even some uh, uh, men, and I shouldn't even say women, I should say girls and boys that have been that are involved in trafficking and trying to help them get out of their situations. And it was there were some pretty bleak statistics that she gave, um, and 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 some that just almost were shocking. And, you know, one of the statistics that was interesting is um, most of uh, they, and they they kind of refer to being involved in trafficking as being in the life, as they call it, um, you know, which is, you know, prostitution, stripping and all sorts of uh, various things. Uh, but uh, the average age of entry into the life of, of being, you know, a prostitute uh, or, you know, giving sexual favors for money or whatever it is and being, you know, essentially not receiving the benefit of that. It usually goes to somebody that's actually pimping you out, so to speak. Um, for girls, it's 12 to 14. And for boys, it's 11 to 13. And those, the average age when they're actually identified as being involved in that life is 15. So by the time most, you know, social service agencies and police agencies, whatever, find out somebody's involved in this life, they've been involved with it on an average of one to three years. You know, what an incredibly um, just depressing statistic. Can you imagine the psychological damage to a child that can be done in one to three years of, of being forced into that kind of life? And it, you know, and it talked about, you know, she also talked about the statistic for um, runaways and the frequent, you know, how how frequently there are, are there are attempts to recruit them 
within 48 hours of being a runaway? And, you know, ha what would you guess that that, that that chance is, you know, that within 48 hours of a kid running away from home, that they will be approached and attempted to be recruited into the, the human trafficking life um, in 48 hours. You think that's like a one in a hundred thing that happens within 48 hours, maybe one in 10? Well, either of those would be too high. It's one in three. So if a kid's on the street for 48 hours, there's a one in three chance somebody will target that kid and attempt to recruit them into a life of human trafficking, of being trafficked and, and prostitution, uh, forced labor, uh, and that sort of thing. It's just amazing statistic. And it kind of brings to mind for me just how important uh, the 15th Night Initiative is um, in in this local Lane County area. And it's an initiative that's um, been brought forward originally by Looking Glass Youth Services and has kind of been picked up and heralded by um, John Ruiz, the city manager of Eugene. But it's an attempt to keep kids from spending the, their 15th night on the street. And that's based on just the fact that if a child spends more than two weeks on the street as homeless uh, during their, their childhood years, they have an 80% greater chance of being chronically homeless as an adult. So that 15th night initiative is purely about trying to prevent adult homelessness. Now by the 15th night, they've been on the street for seven 48 hour periods. So you can imagine they've had at least two attempts probably to recruit them into human trafficking. So for me, we need to move this up to like, there shouldn't be a second night on the street for kids. And there's only 50 to 100 juveniles under the age of 18 that are homeless at any time in Lane County. And that's a small number. And it seems like, you know, if we can house 365 vets in a year, we should be able to provide shelter for 50 to 100 minors at any point in time in Lane County. And it's really something we should concentrate on. But it just, uh, it, it's some of the, you know, you know, she talked about how these guys pick out and recruit kids and they don't just recruit runaways, they recruit in shopping malls and they recruit kids that are from upper class families, but they pick out, they actually train their recruiters in the psychology of susceptible personalities. They look for the kid that's staring at their feet. They, they, they walk up and say hello to the kids. And if they, the kid looks them in the eye and says, you know, hello back or, or who are you or something like that, they know that's not somebody they can re recruit. If the kid looks away and doesn't make eye contact, they know that there's a self-esteem issue there that they can exploit and become that kid's friend. And, you know, and they start out as the friend and then they suddenly have some kind of money problem where they're gonna get hurt or something like that if they don't come up with some money real quick. But the guy won't you know, hurt him if they'll just you know, do this one sexual favor for him. And probably by that time, the, the, the person that's probably an adult's already sleeping with a minor and just says, you know, I, I won't hold this against you. It won't count. You know, if you'll just do this one time for me and, and get me out of this bind and I won't get hurt, you know, and, and these 
these victims of human trafficking actually believe they're in a relationship with their handler. And, and these handlers may have multiple kids, you know, that they've, they've convinced of this at a time. And it's just a, a horrid, horrid um, system of abuse. And it's just um, something we need to, to concentrate on here in Oregon and here in Lane County in particular. And people that don't think it's happening here in Lane County, when they talk to some of the folks, when they actually manage to arrest some of these, these pimps slash handlers, whatever you want to call them, recruiters, they talk about downtown Eugene as one of their prime recruiting areas. That whole travelers hang out and where kids come down, you know, high school kids skip class to hang out with the travelers. That is a prime recruiting zone for these guys. So, and then they get trafficked, you know, once they get them removed from their family enough that where they're actually, uh, you know, away from the family and homeless with, with them, they take them up to Portland and Seattle and, and uh, down to L.A. And there's actually a circuit these guys run and go from city to city so they don't overstay their stay in any one city. And they use things like Backpage and um, uh, all, all the various uh, apps on, on, on the phone and all that to advertise and, and, and of course there's always this, the various streets people know about in certain towns that you can go that are considered the red light district. Um, and they, these, it's just an insidious um, way, but, and the pimps though can make, and she, the statistics she had were pretty astounding. Even in Portland, it was like $30,000 a week unreportable cash income just by handling several young kids. And, and they, you know, they look at it as, as, as better than dealing drugs because you sell, you know, a gram of, or, or whatever it is of methamphetamine or heroin, you have to reply, you have to replenish your supply. So you got to buy large amounts to beat up and then sell small amounts. And, and you always have to buy a supply. Once you recruit and, and, own, and basically own a girl or a boy, you resell them over and over and over again. There's, you know, it, and, and the average is that, that these kids stay, quote, in the life for seven years. And that's their average career expectancy because uh, they usually end up uh, either dying or, um, you know, having medical complications or something that gets them basically out of the career, out of the life at about that point. But, you know, seven years of being able to sell somebody several times a day um, is, and the punishments aren't as bad as some of the drug punish, drug sales punishments. It's just uh, uh, getting to be a, a real rampant problem on the I-5 corridor here and, and even elsewhere in the country. And it was an eye-opening talk and one thing I'll be taking a look at as a commissioner to see what we can do here in Lane County to try and save our kids from this, this, the horrors of being um, trafficked. And, and that kind of, um, you know, brings me to a, a, a completely different topic, uh, which is this whole idea of, you know, protecting illegal immigrants and, and allowing illegal immigrants into the state of Oregon and being sanctuary and all that stuff. And the fact that um, 
illegal immigrants are prime for human trafficking. In fact, quite often what you see in human trafficking is people that are brought into this country under the guise of a coyote getting them in so that they can you know, get a job at a hotel or something like that. And next thing you know, they're being trafficked. Um, so, you know, the fact that when you allow somebody in this country on an illegal status, it makes them vulnerable to these guys. Because one of the things they can threaten to do is to turn them over to ICE to be deported, you know, as a way of controlling the, the, them. So um, there is an interrelationship between illegal immigration and human trafficking that people also need to recognize. And it kind of brings me to our, our governor, who in the midst of the fact that we've got a $1.3 billion deficit they're trying to fill, even though we've got almost $2 billion more money than we had last biennium, um, is proposing to spend a whole bunch of money so that she can ensure illegal immigrants um, healthcare. Uh, I think she, the proposal she came up with was for $55 million. Um, kind of interesting to be pushing that forward at the same time that the federal government is threatening to yank the federal funding for sanctuary cities. And I don't know if that would include the state of Oregon because we actually have a sanctuary state law in Oregon that's been in place for almost 30 years. Um, to propose spending another $55 million on uh, illegal immigrants at the same time we may lose billions in federal funds um, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition of, of I, I'm not quite sure if, if she's facing the reality of, of what today's political situation is so that's a couple things that were on my mind I got a few more I'll get into in a minute but I want to give you guys a chance to get in here and get in on the conversation at 646-721-9887 because it is a free-for-all show on the Bose Nose Show and I'm your host Jay Bozovich Lane County Commissioner and you can call up and talk to me about anything you know we can talk about human trafficking we can talk about protesting at people's homes because that's what I want to talk about next, unless you call me with a different subject on a completely different thing. Again, that's 646-721-9887. And you can also email me, us at talk at krbnradio.net. And uh, be sure to like us on Facebook. Uh, we've got a KRBN Radio Internet Facebook page. Um, and uh, like us there. And uh Keep track of the show. And remember that you can always come back and listen to the show, uh, you know, archived any of the past shows. You can go back and listen to my show with the Lane County Sheriff from about three weeks ago, uh, February 1st, I think it was, and uh, hear him uh, talk about sanctuary uh, and a few other things in the jail levy. We can talk about jail levy too, but I wanted to move on to this idea of whether or not it's right to come to somebody's home to launch a political protest when their family's at that home also. Um, you know, whether, you know, it's the mayor of Portland or whether it's a city councilor of Eugene or whether it's some corporate officer, generally their family is, is an innocent in the political or business process that you're protesting. And, uh, Last night, I think, I believe it was last night, a bunch of protesters showed up at Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler's house 
at about 10 o'clock at night when they were trying to go to bed, they were wearing masks and ski, you know, the bandanas and ski masks and stuff like that, actually came up and beat on his door continually until he eventually answered. His wife and kids were in the residence, scared to death. Um, and I, I'm surprised that, that Mayor Wheeler actually answered it, talked to him and allowed him to read a statement so they would go away. Um, I would have been calling uh, the local police force and, and might have answered the door armed. Um, because at that point, you are threatening my family. And I am concerned for my personal safety if you come to my house and are beating on my door, which means you had to walk onto property, pro private property to get to my door. Um, but, you know, it, is that a legitimate form of free speech and political protest? Should people be allowed to go and, and, and march on people's front lawns, trample their landscaping? You know, uh, the... the little protest that the um, homeless uh, advocates had at uh, Councilman George Poling's house. They actually tried to get around to the back of his house um, to beat on his back windows and because they didn't limit themselves to just beating on doors. They were beating on windows, too. Um, and his dogs were out back. And, of course, the, the little mini Aussies that they were, they, they weren't going to have strange people jumping over their front fence. And the protesters actually kicked the dogs and injured one of them. Um, you know, at that point, I think I'd have been not just out there armed. I might have, um, it would have been tough to uh, keep me from uh, uh, defending my, my uh, animals uh, from injury. Uh, you know, I, I, that would have been a really difficult moment for me because uh, I love my animals. Um, and, you know, and I, I at one time had threats of a protest at my own house from some animal rights folks. Um, and one of the things I, I tried to tell them was, you know, you'll be disturbing my animals if you come to protest at my house. Um, but I, 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 fortunately, far enough out in the country, they never got themselves organized to protest at my house. It was all over the fact that we uh, contracted with Green Hill Humane Society to run our shelter. Um, which has turned out very well in the long run, um, but they were having a fit about us privatizing our shelter at the time. Um, it saved the county money and it kept the shelter open. Our choice was to close it or privatize it. Um, and we chose to go with trying to keep it open and provide animal shelter here in Lane County. Um, but, you know, is that, you know, what do you think? Um, Give me a call, 646-721-9887. Is it okay to come to a politician's home to protest? And particularly come to their home at night. And that's what they did to George Poling also. They came at night. And they came at night to, to Mayor Wheeler's house. You know, whether you agree with the protesters or disagree with the protesters, is that a, a, a correct and, and actually a protected form of free speech? Should you be able to walk in onto somebody's private property to knock on their door to demand that they come out and talk to you? Um, you know, yeah, to me, I think that's a form of trespass, particularly with the angry intent this mob had. And you know what this protest was all about? It was about the fact that the, the protest on Monday on not the Not Your President's protest in Portland where they blocked the streets, that there were arrests made. 
uh, and that they didn't like the way the police handled that, even though the police went in, asked the protesters to leave the streets. They didn't have a permit to occupy the street. It was an unpermitted protest in the first place, and they're blocking a street and other people's right to travel, which, in, which is a form of false imprisonment um, and illegal imprisonment, um, which the protesters were, were achieving. And um, the bicycle uh, officers rode into the protest, asked the protesters to vacate the street. Protesters refused, so they brought in the um, uh, rapid response team, which is basically the riot police, um, and came and then broadcast pleas for the protesters to vacate the street for 20 minutes. And, most, and a good portion of the protesters went off onto the sidewalk and got out of the street and obeyed the police orders. It was those that wouldn't, after 20 minutes, that the police moved in and started arresting. And for some reason, that was incorrect for the police to do and, and generated this at-home protest at Mayor Wheeler's house. You know, I, I just don't get it. And I don't get where the protesters actually think this is actually helping their cause. There was a, uh, a recent survey done uh, that basically said the more um, uh, uh, unlawful the protest is, you know, the, the, and it, it gets more attention by TV and, and news and all that stuff, but the more likely it was to turn people off from the cause it was supporting, you know, that, that where they really wanted people to go. So, you know, the blocking traffic sort of thing, that kind of annoys people in turn, doesn't really hear the message. The ones where they actually, you know, do property damage and hurt the cops and all that stuff, that definitely turns people off. Of course, that's the one that gets the most TV coverage. So, you know, these folks that think that they're actually helping their message, the, the protests they have that, get that go that direction, you know, if they can't control their own protest, they're actually harming themselves because they actually get more coverage the worse they get. And the worse they get, the more they actually harm their message. You know, so, you know, I just don't understand the motivation to go to somebody's home at night, beat on their door, wearing masks, and think that somehow or another that was going to advance your message. I mean, just think of his kids and his wife, how they felt. You know, I, you know it, it almost makes me shake to think of somebody doing that at my house. You know, and, and what, you know, I could just imagine, um, you know, my dogs inside barking, going nuts, my wife, you know, throwing a fit and wondering what the hell's going on, you know, me attempting to try and get sheriff's deputies out to my place at a reasonable response time. You know, at, at that point, you know, it's, I'm pulling out my pistol grip pump action 12 gauge and my nine mil and strapping up and getting ready for them to come through the door. Um, and if anyone, you know, pulled the door open or broke a window, uh, I don't know what, what would happen at that point. Um, but, you know, it's a, a kind of a scary world out there. You know, and I talked about this two weeks ago about how we just all really need to take a deep breath, back away for a minute, Stop identifying as a member of a group. Think of ourselves as, as individuals and think individually for a few moments and think of other people as individuals who, 
you know, if you have a friend that voted for the other candidate, they didn't do so because they were evil and aligned with everything you find evil about that candidate. They did it because they felt that candidate was going to be better for the country than the other candidate in some way, and not because they aligned with the warts of that candidate um, on either side. And, and you shouldn't stop talking to people that did did vote the other way, because what you should be asking them is, what do you think about that candidate is going to be better for the country? And let me try and understand that. And I'll tell you why I felt the other candidate might be better. And let's talk about the, the, the philosophies of governing and, and discuss, you know, you know, philosophies and, um, you know, political um, things, not, you know, name calling and stuff like that. You know, I don't know that these protests do a whole lot of good. It'd be better if we could just all sit down and say, yeah, I understand you guys are concerned. Um, no more than we were concerned eight years ago when we lost the presidency to somebody we considered to be very harmful to, you know, we thought was going to do harm to the country. Um, let's talk about it. You know, I understand your fears. And recognize that, you know, don't discount that people have fears because, you know, that that's, you know, one of the things, you know, I understand is there are fears about what may happen and things you think are going to happen and might happen. Um, but let's talk about, you know, philosophies, why you thought one philosophy was better than another. Um, and let's look for where there's common ground. But start from the point where the other side is going, you know, with some of their, um, you know, their actions and stuff are, are based on what they think is best, not necessarily with some evil motivation to punish somebody or to um, criminalize somebody or whatever you think, you know, might be the, the case. Um, and, and showing up at somebody's house in the dark, wearing a mask, beating on their door is not advancing a conversation at all. Jay, uh, up in? Yeah, sure, Robin. I was just going to add to that is that some of these protesters, when they've been interviewed, asked, what are they protesting? A lot of them just say, oh, which is kind of interesting. Are, are they responding to a tweet or, you know, they don't have the facts straight to what they're, what they're trying to protest, not to mention what they actually expect to gain from it? Yeah, well, quite often they've been brought there by a friend. And the friend might be the knowledgeable person, and the person that got asked the question may not be quite so knowledgeable, but they came along. Or they thought it was going to turn into something really cool. They might get to, to break some windows and loot. You know, there's certain personalities that are drawn to that sort of situation, um, looking for conflict, um, and, you know, really don't care what the issue is. They were They were hoping to get, you know, you know, to to get their chance to to vandalize or get their chance to block traffic or get their chance to you know get pepper sprayed by a cop so maybe they can sue the city and make money who knows what their motivations were to be there but it wasn't really the political thing that got them there it was something else exactly yeah. in fact I, I, think, I, I think about this the other day is that um, if you even mention the word Trump people get some people just go into, into immediate anger mode and I can't recall any time that people were so outraged over a president. Can you? 
No, not not at all. I mean, it got kind of silly with George Bush for a while. Um, and I, I will say there were some people that were pretty silly about Obama. Uh, you know, there's there's example. I have examples of people I know that that would absolutely just, you know, get angry and start yelling about how horrible Obama was if you brought him up or anything like that. I mean, it was, you know, there there's always a few that have that extreme, but I haven't seen it where it's so much of of the the populace that, that that's such a triggering thing for. And, you know, part of it was, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This didn't just happen overnight to our country to get to the point where we're that upset about stuff. I mean, I'm sure if Hillary were president today, there would be a good portion of Republicans and conservatives that would be just as angry and her name, mentioning her name would just generate angry outbursts from people. Um, I don't know if we'd actually be out in the streets marching and stuff like that. It doesn't tend to be the conservative's way of doing things. But um, that whole anger has been building up since we started this whole um, concept of identity politics and trying to divide people up into groups of and identifying by being a member of a group. And um, it's all about, you know, your policies punishing my group. Um, and, and therefore you must be evil and, and, and hate my group and, and are a, whatever it is, ist, um, for not liking my group. <laughs> Actually, yes, you know, what it is, it's racist, you know, I think what it is is that these children are crying because they're taking away their lollipop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a little bit of that, but I think, you know, the anger wouldn't be so bad if we hadn't started getting into this dividing us up right. and making it okay to be angry. You know, one of the things we did was we started encouraging that, that anger made it okay. Um, you saw it, uh, as the, um, not my president all started with president Bush after the, uh, contested, uh, 2000 election. Um, and the anger towards President Bush, uh, uh, and and kind of the that was promoted and and became commonplace to where you had senators um, giving speeches where they were very derogatory towards the president in a pretty personal way at times, um, and, and where it got okay to call the president, you know, the 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 first chimp or whatever it was, they used to refer to him as a chimp all the time. Uh, yeah. You know, and just, you know, there are all these things that they just, um, and, and, it, and it, you know, it just seemed to get worse. And it, and um, we, we kind of made that, that behavior okay. And then there got to be the internet. And uh, first it was message boards where people would flame each other and there would be flame wars and stuff like that. And then we got Facebook and, and uh, comment sections on in, in news articles and people can, from the anonymity of a, a pseudonym uh, just be terribly uncivil. And it really isn't, you know, frowned upon and you see it at, you know, you know, now very commonplace where that women's March, if you listen to some of the speakers in the Washington DC, 
and imagine them saying some of the things they said back in 1960, um, in the 60s, when they had uh, the the um, August 8th march there with Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, can you imagine a speaker at that event getting up there and using the foul language and attacking a single person rather than just talking about the concept of equality and judging people by the content of their character versus the color of their skin and just asking for that right to be judged on the content of your character, not the color of your skin. And it's, think of how that's changed over that the 50 some years to where we have a nationwide celebrity in front of a microphone using language that would be would have been you know on the seven dirty words list of George Carlin's you know repeatedly and referencing our our president and everything and people were cheering on the same mall you know in that 50 year span that's changed and wanting to be identified by the color of their skin and member or membership in a group versus being judged as an individual for the content or your character as as Dr. King wanted people to be judged. What a reversal and what a change. And that that that's really, you know, this anger you're seeing in these protests and all has been the generalized culturalization of it's okay to be that publicly offensive and that publicly angry. It's okay because you're a victim because you're a member of a group, you know. It's all right if, if you know, there, whether you know the facts of the situation or not, if a white law enforcement official for some reason uses force against a person of color, it must have been wrong. And it's okay to destroy a third party's personal property while objecting to the fact that there was some use of force, whether it was justified or not, and the investigation hasn't been completed. You know, we made that okay. In fact, we had a president that practically endorsed it and looked the other way as as we were seeing towns being burnt. You know, look at his response to Baltimore. You know, his attempt, you know, I, I'll never forget what was the, the college professor and the police officer that had a little to do on the, on the college professor's front porch um, that got misreported. And within hours, uh, our president at the time was basically blaming the police officer, which generated the whole beer summit thing. I, I don't know if you remember that. Um, but it was just, you know, that that's the culture right now is it, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to react that way. Um, instead of being thoughtful and stepping back and, and, I, I I hope that we there that people listening to me will do that. Step back and start thinking of people as individuals, not you know a liberal, not a conservative, not a Trumpster, not you know a progressive or however you want to make people derogatory. They're an individual, and some of their beliefs you may not agree with, but they you have to give them. The, the credit that they believe those things because they think that there'll be it'll make us a better place. Well, and on top of that, uh, 
I got a quick little soundbite for you to comment on here. Sure. I haven't queued it, so I'm do, I'm doing this raw. Okay. Well, I'll give you a second here, and we'll 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 get this soundbite on the Bozno Show. And once again, I'll I'll note it's a free for all, so you control the conversation at six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. Just give us a call, and uh, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about instead of uh, the anger in the country right now. Okay. Here we go. I'm angry. Yes, I am outraged. Yes, I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House. But I know that this won't change anything. We cannot fall into despair. And, of course, that got her a little visit from the Secret Service. Yeah. Which is yeah. But at least, you know, she did say, she did acknowledge that that anger and those thoughts won't change anything. True. And and, and if you, the last part of that soundbite was not falling into despair. And that's basically what I'm hoping people won't do. You know, it's, let's, you know, Step back for a few minutes, turn off the evening news, you know, spend a day without Facebook, whatever it takes to unplug yourself for a little while, and then re-engage with a, a new uh, outlook to look at those that you disagree with as honestly believing that their their views are views that would improve um, their community, their country, the world, whatever you want to, you know, put it, and talk about the policies and and the uh, philosophies with them, um, and find out if there's any common points you have with them. You'd be surprised sometimes if you get into a fairly detailed conversation and treat a person as an individual, and not just a liberal progressive or some, you know, fascist conservative, um, you know. We, we we just need to treat each other as individuals and treat each other as, you know, having good motivations. It's very rare in human nature that people don't, that people believe things for bad reasons. You know, that they, they don't believe a certain policy or, or philosophy or, or governmental uh, action, you know, is not something that will improve something. You know, or even an economic policy or economic activity. You know, it, it's rare somebody has the intent to harm in in their mind. There are people that that are advancing things because it'll gain power over people, um, and and that, that's an exception, um, and is usually reserved for um, you know very few people. But you know, the the majority of people, you know, support a candidate or support a, a political party or support a political um, policy or philosophy or uh, a method of governing because they think it will be helpful, not because they have some ill intent. You know, it, you know, I, I, I support the 15th night initiative and trying to get some resources into getting homeless kids off the street, which, you know, some conservatives might think is, is 
um, a nanny state or sort of thing, and why should we be involved in that? No, I want to try and have it be a cooperative, you know, with charitable organizations involved and the private sector involved. It should be a, a community-wide effort. Um, it shouldn't purely be government. But getting those kids off the street, to me, is a way of preventing long-term adult homelessness, and it gets at the root of that problem, as well as preventing human trafficking, which is a horrible, horrible thing. And, you know, I think I could probably convince almost any conservative that's a good thing and convince any liberal progressive that that's a good thing to do. You know, can we all find common cause in in getting homeless kids off the streets so they aren't trafficked and they don't become long-term homeless adults? Well, that brings up the point about all those people that are protesting, for example, all the energy if that was put into more of a constructive area, I mean, we'd have, um, it, it'd be awesome. Yeah. And, you know, you think about some of the past protests that have been, um, you know, successful, peaceful, um, dis- civil disobedience to a certain extent in the, in the mold of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King, you know, Think of the rhetoric that they, that they were doing at those protests. You know, their, 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 their rhetoric was always aspiring to a constructive future of some common good, you know, whether it was in independence for the Indian people, uh, where they could, you know, preserve their culture from the British and, and uh, you know, free themselves from, from British dominance. Or it was, um, you know, the the civil rights um, aspirations to be treated as, as true equals in in this society and to be judged, you know, not by your appearance, um, but by, you know, by your the content of your character. Um, at least if you're going to have spend time protesting, spend it, you know, being you know talking about constructive aspirations. You know, what, you know, what do you want to do that will really, um, you know, make this country better? You know, and, and what's the, you know, the, what's the good message you want to put out there for people to hear and aspire to? If you, you know, if you're going to ha- gather, you know, 100,000 people together, are you going to stand up there and talk about how you might want to, you know, you, you fantasized about blowing up the White House? Or do you want to talk about, how you know one day you want um, you know true equality and to to not have to be concerned about um, you know things like you know particularly with this women's march rape and and um, uh, being uh, objectified so that you you know there's you know in society where there's enough people that would actually support the human trafficking trade because they can consider you know can p- consider people objective as, as enough of an object to be bought and sold, you know. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here for just a second. Sure. Eight minutes left in the program. Give us a call, 646-721-987, because there's something I don't want to uh, want you to get away with before the show's over, and that's something positive. Uh, talk to us about the Moody's report. Oh, yeah. 
I, you know, I didn't even put that on my list to talk about today because I was also going to talk about running off to D.C. on Friday. Uh, and I'll be in D.C. next week, which means I may or may not be doing a live show next week, depending on what my schedule is on Wednesday. Um, but, yeah, we got really good news at Lane County yesterday. Uh, officially, I kind of knew it was coming for about two weeks, but we weren't able to talk about it officially. I got the word actually on um, Thursday that uh, Moody's was going to upgrade our bond rating, uh, but they hadn't given us permission to publicly talk about it yet. And we officially got that permission yesterday. Uh, and we are actually, and, and for people that don't know who Moody's is, if you weren't paying attention, they, they, um, they're the ones that rate bonds and actually got a little bit of trouble back in 2006 through 2008 because they were, they were rating those mortgage securities that were junk as actually um, investment grade bonds. Hold another story, but um, they do a, a pretty significant rating system of municipal bonds. Um, and, and it's been a long-term thing they've done for years and years and years. And um, Lane County's bond rating slipped a little bit with the end of the timber payments and everything um, down to a double A3 and we were just upgraded to double A2 um, which is a really double A3 is not bad but double A2 is better uh, you know you know but it means that Lane County will be able to issue new debt or refinance old debt at, at better interest rates because we have a higher bond rating it you know that bond rating relates to uh, having the difference between an 800 and an 820 on your credit score. Uh, so basically, our county's credit score just went up. Uh, and it's something, you know, they rate thousands of municipal agencies across the country. They only review uh, a select few every year for upgrades. And of those that they review, not all of them get the upgrade. And we feel really fortunate to get the upgrade because it means we've done a lot to control our costs financially and to and to really fix Lane County's finances. People have to understand that we lost 93% of our federal forest funding over the last 15 years and, and have had to deal with real dollar cuts in our budget from year to year and, and year after year. So we've had to make significant changes in Lane County in restructuring, redoing uh, employee benefits. Uh, we took one-time money and paid off debt to save future interest rates. Um, we've uh, handled uh, lawsuits internally versus contracting externally um, to save money. It's it just been a whole plethora of things we've done to save money. And if back in 2000. Um, 14, we were actually identified as one of uh, nine at-risk counties in, Lane, in, in the state of Oregon for bankruptcy by this Secretary of State in a, in a statewide audit of counties. And in 2016, we actually got removed from that list because we had done enough to stabilize our finances where they, they dropped it down to only um, five counties, four or five counties that are remaining on that list. And now in 2017, we've actually gotten an upgrade in our credit rating. Um, that shows there's been really some good things done in the financial management of Lane County over the last um, six years since I've been a commissioner, because it really, it really 
kicked off in, in 2011 when we um, did things like eliminate the, the halftime assistance to the commissioners that the previous board had put in place and, and um, limited the budgets for our commissioners' offices, and we reorganized the, the um, county from 14 departments down to nine departments, so we got rid of five department heads. Uh, yeah, and changed from 20 different uh, health insurance plans and bargained all our, our bargaining units down to two common uh, health insurance plans and saved millions just in administration costs alone. Um, you know, that's really been a, a, a success story. And I said, Lichen said this in a meeting this January when we were talking about a budget. He says, this is a Lane County miracle. I mean, there's no way, no way else to describe it. So I have to credit Sid, Sid Lichen, uh, Commissioner Lichen with that. But it is the Lane County miracle. We should have gone bankrupt. We should have collapsed by, you know, losing 93% of our federal funds. And it, I mean, tens of millions of dollars in our general fund and our road fund over the last 15 years. And surviving that against rising PERS costs rising health insurance costs, everything else that's going on in the background that's driving school districts to cut days out of their school years and, you know, uh, all sorts of problems across the board. And we've managed to stabilize ourselves enough to where we actually got an upgrade in our credit rating. And that's a pretty spectacular thing and just speaks to how well our staff and our management are committed to making Lane County more stable financially. And uh, I can't say that the board is, is solely responsible for that. We've got a great county administrator right now. Our previous county administrator actually started that work um, back in 2011. And um, our new one has continued that work. And um, we've got some good financial staff under him that's doing great work. And, and on down to the lowliest Lane County employee that, uh, that you can think of, they're all committed to helping save money and, and being willing to make compromises in union contracts. And uh, it's just been a real success story. So Robin, I'm glad you interrupted me and, and, and let me bring that up. Uh, it is really a success story. but. Um, next week, I'm going to Washington, D.C. because I'm going to the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference. It's the first time I've been in the six years I've been a commissioner, partly because now that I am co-chair of the Association of Oregon Counties Public Safety Committee on the Justice and Public Safety Committee of uh, the NACO, and I will be going there to lobby, lobby Congress critters about all sorts of uh, county issues and hope to get to talk to them about maybe uh, getting back to cutting a few trees in our federal forest so we don't have to have forest payments here in Lane County. And I hope to be able to broadcast live from D.C. next week. So uh, we'll see if we can do that or not. We'll see if the technical and, and schedule things work out. So hopefully I'll be talking to you from Washington, D.C. next week on the Bo's Nose Show. But I want to thank you for listening here on the Bo's Nose Show. We've been here live from downtown Elmira, Oregon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>